socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHDY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, be sure to tell one friend, just one, you think might like it too. Two, if you want to go crazy. You can also sign up for the YDHTY weekly email to receive a deeper exploration of the topics discussed on this week's show via the link in the show description or by going to ydhty.com slash news. Now, it is Wednesday, June 8th at 625 Eastern Time, 2022, as I'm recording this, and we are continuing to explore the question as to whether it is democracy that brings prosperity or the other way around. And in the conversation we had two episodes ago with Andre Sherbach, we discussed how a growing middle class leads to improvement in diet, which in turn leads to the population pushing for democratic reforms. And is the reverse also true, that a decline in diet could lead to democratic backsliding? Now, as we see food supplies stretched by war, declining energy supplies and climate change, can we expect the freedoms and quality of life we've come to know and love to decline with it? Well, to answer this question, I invited Cullen Hendricks, professor at the University of Denver's Corbell School of International Studies and non-resident fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics to help explain the current state of the world's food supply, how climate change will affect it, and how we'll need to adapt to tackle these changes as the years go on. And Cullen's work focuses on the intersection of environment, food security, and conflict, so I could not have made a better guest if I built him in a lab. I was particularly interested to learn about whether and how food crises in other countries affected democratic institutions and whether they proved more resilient than their autocratic counterparts. Cullen did not disappoint. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Uh, to the listener, just be prepared for any dog sounds, kid sounds, anything like that. That may pop up. How I, I'd imagine 720 is a fairly peaceful hour in Japan right now, Cullen? Or? It's quite peaceful, especially since I'm by myself right now. Were it that I were at my home in Denver, Colorado, all of the caveats you just put on the table would also apply. Okay, so you've got yourself like half a world removed from all the noise I'm about to experience in the next hour's time. You know, to set off the conversation, like like I said, you know, one of the ideas that we've been exploring over the past couple of weeks is this whole concept of resource scarcity and whether much of the conflict we see both in the United States but also outside is the result of that. And I think a I'll, I'll quote Alan Greenspan because I think he kind of sums up what I'd consider conventional wisdom. In his book, The Age of Turbulence, he cites consistently how a capitalist democracy has never experienced a famine. And so my big question is, and the one I've been trying to answer, is it prosperity that brings democracy or democracy that brings prosperity? You know, which is it? Big goals today, Cullen. 
for a, for a Monday morning. I was going to say, I mean, at least we're not going to be interrogating any of the really big or fundamental issues that confront political scientists and economists and, and you know, and, and have for decades at this point. We're just going to keep it nice and surface. So, yeah, let's just keep it light. I mean, we've got an immense kind of, you know, sort of territory that we can cover here. Lots of vexing problems on the table. And hopefully we can we can bat it around and see if we can't come up with some solutions or at least. Yeah ways of thinking that might get us to solutions ultimately. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And so to keep it again, to, to, maybe to start off with just the basics, Okay. you know, what's the state of the global food supply today? Are we in this state of misused overabundance or is there some, or let me rephrase that. Are we in a state of misused overabundance or are we legitimately in a state where maybe population is outstripping supply? Great question. So I would start by saying that in the near term, we are facing a crisis of constricted supply. Right now, the global food system is missing, or I should say the global trading system for food, which is only about, you know, maybe a quarter of the calories that people consume worldwide, but is incredibly important because it tends to set the market prices that people pay for food, even in places where they, you know, aren't eating a lot of imported food. So it's, it's definitely important. Right now, the global food system is missing about 10% of the calories that would normally be available for trade. And it's missing those because of intentional export restrictions that countries are imposing because they are responding to what is fair to say a global food price crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen in about a decade, and one that may be fundamentally different from the ones that we've seen in the past. Now, to sort of answer the broader question, we are not in a situation where there are too many mouths chasing too few calories. We are in a situation in which we have a global food system that is inefficient, uh, that supports essentially, I would say, conspicuous consumption of very calorie-dense foods for those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to afford them. Um, so meat, for instance, right, which is very calorically dense itself, but requires a lot of resources uh, to get that steak to your table, right? It is not the case that we don't have enough. It is the case, however, that the global food system is not meeting the basic needs of about a billion people chronically, and maybe 1.2 to 1.3 billion people acutely in this moment of crisis. You you mentioned that the food systems inefficient. So what are some of the larger inefficiencies? I mean, the, the, probably the biggest inefficiency would be food waste. Um, it's not a glamorous thing to talk about because you know, I'm not going to generate a lot of clicks telling people you're going to talk about rotten and spoiled food. But you know, the fact remains that, that anywhere from 30 to 50% of the total potential of the global food system is wasted due to um, you know sort of post-harvest loss, um, kind of spoilage and transshipment, and then and then wasted food by the time it gets to uh, the consumer's table. Okay, so that's something that each of us individually can attempt to tackle. The other ways in which it's 
inefficient are that we have gotten ourselves in a situation where we have at once increased our global dependence on interconnected global markets to meet our basic food needs. All right, so we've globalized the food system in the same way that we've globalized trade, we've globalized finance, et cetera. And there's resilience there, uh, especially in times of plenty. Um, this is something that's actually, at, at least prior to the, pre to the current decade, that was responsible for helping to drastically reduce the share of people worldwide that are food insecure. Um, unfortunately, when you build that interconnected kind of system, that system becomes prone to systemic failure. And one of the sources of systemic failure that we're seeing right now is the war in Ukraine, uh, and not just the war in Ukraine and the effect that's having on Ukrainian food supplies and their ability to service global markets and Russia's willingness to service global markets, but it's also having an effect that's operating through the policies that many countries are enacting in response to that instability that are accounting for those 10% of calories that are missing from the global food system right now. And there, there's the first thing I want to highlight here, and this is actually something I've brought up on this podcast before, but one of my personal missions in this house is to consume every leftover. So there is no piece of lasagna or fish or anything else that goes into our fridge that is ever left behind. I will eat it all because there is nothing I hate more than throwing out food for the reasons you for the reasons you cite. And again, I will get off my soapbox now, dear listener, eat your leftovers though, eat your leftovers. And I won't have to say this ever again. Um, part two of that though, and something you mentioned is, so we have this global system of uh, food distribution. And you mentioned how the price isn't necessarily set locally. So is the way we're trading in food, is that exacerbating the problem as well? It is. Um, and you can look at the last two decades as kind of an uncontrolled experiment in what happens when you take a basic necessity like food, um, which has always been a commodity, it's always been traded like a lot of commodities are, and you essentially financialize that commodity in a way that had never been previously. Um, so this is going to get a little bit pedantic, so stop me if I'm, if I'm, if I'm kind of getting too much into kind of the financial side, inside baseball on this. Yeah. So you have, around the time that you have the repeal of Glass-Steagall, right, which is this um, reform to the U.S. banking system that basically uh, brought down the firewall between retail banking and investment banking. This is what essentially, you know, one of the factors that led to the financial crisis that almost completely brought down the global economy. Around that same time, you have something called the Commodities Futures Modernization Act that was passed. And the idea was that you would get rid of a lot of restrictions on the ways in which food commodities and other commodities for that matter, like energy commodities, the metals that we use to build things, et cetera, the ways in which those were regulated. So back in the good old days, about 80% of the money in those markets um, were people who were trading in the actual product, right? So you've got You've got, you know, the, the large agribusinesses, you've got large purchasers of cereals. I think companies like Kellogg or Post, et cetera, General Mills, right? People who have a standing interest in making sure that they have, you know, that they're getting uh, a, a, a reasonable 
price for their food, and then they're paying reasonable costs for it under market uncertainty. And the other 20% were kind of speculators. They were there to provide liquidity in the market, make sure that, 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 there was, that the market didn't get seized up effectively. Now, after the Commodities Futures Modernization Act, that ratio flips. So for about the last 20 years or so, um, you've had about 20% of the money in those markets, and it may actually be a, a lower ratio now, about 20% of that money that's in those markets um, is money that's there because people are trading in the physical product. And 80% of it is there um, for essentially speculative purposes. Now, I'm not just talking about the kind of wildcat kind of commodities traders here. I'm talking about large financial institutions that have turned these kind of things into a security. They've turned them into an asset class for institutional investors. You go into any major investment bank in New York City, you go down to Wall Street, and you can invest money in index funds that are basically composites of futures contracts on wheat, on corn, on rice. Um, and so if you have that kind of environment where you've taken a basic good and you've turned it into essentially something that you can bet on, um, and you have a permissive kind of environment for monetary policy, especially like we've seen um, you know, in, in response to the global financial crisis, but more recently, right, in response to COVID, as we saw interest rates kind of plummet, anytime that happens, uh, that money is going to be looking for, for return on investment, right? It's going to be looking for some margin somewhere, and that tends to inflate, right, these commodities indices, because investment banks and other investors are parking their money in this asset class. Now, the problem is that this isn't exactly like parking your money in say, mortgage-backed securities, right? Um, this is parking your money in futures markets that have a fundamental impact on how you and I are able to access food. Um, and we're the lucky ones. We, 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 we live in a society that has high enough levels of income that marginal changes in food prices uh, you know, are typically not going to be the difference between you being able to feed your family in a week um, a, a, or, you know, or not, right? Mm -hmm. um, for a huge share of the global population, you know, maybe 40%, eh, it's maybe somewhere between 30 and 40%, the changes and the high prices that we're seeing in, in food commodity markets are in effect doubling many of their expenditures um, for basic necessities. And we're talking about people who are already spending, you know, maybe 50% or more just on food in terms of their household income. So these proportional increases that are driven by a variety of factors, you know, so drought in major exporting countries that drives prices up. The Ukraine war is obviously driving prices up because Ukrainian exports are down and Russian exports are down, et cetera. Um, but also as these prices increase in these markets, just because they're an attractive investment opportunity, it curtails rank and file people the globe over's ability to access that at a reasonable cost. Um, and that's just one example of one of the changes that's occurred in the last couple of decades that has, unfortunately, right, it, 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 there, there, there are features there. there. There are good things about having that amount of liquidity in commodity markets. But in times where people are really concerned about physical supply, are we going to have wheat, you know, coming off the ship that we're going to be able to consume? Under those circumstances, um, the system breaks down and the costs become prohibitive. Um, 
and you know people will people will experience hunger and potentially starve to death because of this i want to highlight something here because this is something we've talked about in in recent episodes on this podcast which is the effect monetary policy in the united states has had on the on global finance on the whole and i think in past episodes it's been different in the sense that you know monetary policy and the effect it has on financial markets is all fine and good when it results in you know somebody throwing a bunch of money into bitcoin or an nft of jack dorsey's first tweet or something stupid like that from from what i'm hearing from you it sounds like this is a case too where the distortions in the markets that we see all over the place, you know, the, the asset bubbles we now see everywhere mm-hmm. are really affecting people's ability just to survive effectively, to access food. Is that correct? Yes, 100%. I mean, you, you just, you just, you hit the nail on the head in terms of diagnosing the problem. So if people want to treat something like cryptocurrency or NFTs, like a roulette table, more power to them. I'm not in any position to tell them what to do with their money. When you're doing the same thing with basic commodity foodstuffs, right? Um, what you're doing is you're you are impacting, you know, some of the most marginalized, poorest people on earth' ability um, to sustain their families. I mean, that, that that there's a huge just in addition to the economic cost, right? Fundamentally, we are talking about a massive, uh, you know, human and 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 ethical cost that we are paying by virtue of having set up the system in this way. Um, and I, I, don't want, I don't want to come off as somebody who is anti-global food trade. You know, I, I think especially under the, the prospect of, of a changing climate globally with the forecast that we see for differing kind of levels of agricultural productivity moving forward in different parts of the world, the only way we're going to meet our future food needs is through a globally interconnected food system. Um, but that system, frankly, needs to be managed better. Um, back in the 2007-2008 food price crisis, uh, the UN you know, Special Rapporteur for Food, a, a guy by the name of Olivier de Schuder, said, you know, you can't treat food like it's televisions or cars. It's something that's fundamentally different. Um, and I think that the regulatory framework that we bring to that needs to be different in light of that. Mm-hmm. Do you too, this, and this gets to one of the big questions I posed at the, the top of this episode, which is when we get into periods of food scarcity, so we, when we get into periods where the cost of food almost starts to become prohibitive, or at least really starts to eat into uh, total income, are, are there commonalities in the way societies react to this? So like some of your work talks about how in Africa, for example, you can see democratic backsliding as the example of food scarcity. Is is that is that something inherent in all of us? So, in, in in effect, is there something unique, either culturally or geographically, about certain regions that makes them prone to backsliding into autocracy, or is this something, for example, we could expect in Western democracies if things were to get dire enough? You know. I mean, I think that, so I'll, I'll talk about what's common and then I'll talk a little bit about what's differentiated, right? So, yeah. I mean, you know, with, 
if you'll kind of excuse sort of the, I, I guess, the, 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 the turn of phrase, right? Food prices are definitionally what we mean when we talk about a kitchen table issue mm-hmm. in politics, right? They're, they're relevant to everyone, regardless of whether or not you have any interest in, in following pro- politics more broadly. Um, and there's something about which virtually everybody has information, right? Not, you know, people might not know how they feel specifically about certain provisions in, say, the NAFTA renegotiation or decisions that the World Trade Organization is handing down. They do know what the price of eggs is at any given yeah. time. Um, and so it's, it's something that's salient for all of us. It matters to all of us. And it's something that we confront on a daily, you know, potentially daily, if not weekly basis. So that's something that we have in common. Um, the proportional kind of impacts in terms of the, the ways that, that food prices can destabilize countries are larger in lower income societies for some of the reasons we've already mentioned, right? So, you know, in, in your household, don't want to make you know, huge assumptions about how much money there, there is in your household, but for, for most American families, right, the proportion of household income that they're spending on food is, is going to be less than 10%. In fact, probably less than, than 5%. Um, so, you know, a 10% or, excuse me, even the doubling of kind of food prices, it's going to eat into the family budget, but it's not going to do so in the same way that it would for, say, a middle-class family or a lower middle-class family in Lagos, Nigeria, right? So, mm-hmm. so that, that's part of what explains kind of these differential kinds of impacts. Um, the other thing that I would say is that among countries in the global South, we do see kind of a difference in terms of um, kind of the frequency with which these kind of food price spikes are met with protest uh, in some countries and not in others. And, and that tends to break, break down along political institutional lines. Um, so, so food-related protests and riots in times of high prices are more likely to occur in more open, more democratic systems. Um, and this is for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's because, you know, in democracies, the opposition has a built-in incentive to point out the ways in which the current government is mismanaging, right, uh, the food price crisis. They can make hay out of the fact that food is getting more expensive. This can become a pillar of their election, right, campaign. I mean, you're going to see it in the United States when the presidential election comes around and we're talking about inflation as a core political issue in a way that it really wouldn't have been in, in, in 2016 or 2020 for that matter. Um, the other reason is simply that in, in democracies, the cost of bringing people out, actually, let me go back and, and kind of just, just add something to that. So yeah. if you have political systems in which this kind of thing is something that can be politicized by an opposition, they're going to try and use their mobilization acumen to get people out in the streets to to do something about it or to say something about it. Um, That's just kind of a basic sort of contentious politics, mobilization 101. The second reason is that in democracies, these kinds of public mobilizations are tolerated. They're they're, accepted as a matter of course. Food food price-related protests in India happen relatively frequently. They are baked into the political system to a certain extent. you see fewer of these kind of things in more authoritarian countries simply because the cost of mobilization are a lot higher. There may not be opposition parties that can openly call for protests in the first place. Um, and their governments tend to be a lot 
more casual about the use of, of violent force in, in quelling these kinds of protests. This is part of the reason why so many of us were shocked by the wave of protests that occurred during the Arab Spring, because they were, these were mostly hardline authoritarian governments that did not have uh, you know, significant histories of past protest for, for really any reasons um, that ultimately came or so came to kind of protest movements that mobilized around basic kitchen table grievances related to food price inflation and, and, and fuel price inflation at, at that time, which is also an issue that we're dealing with now. Um, now, having said that, you know, the, the potential for kind of democratic backsliding that is the case because you know once the once protesters are in the street, how the government responds to them and whether or not they can they can address their demands um, effectively through kind of legitimate political channels is going to be a big determinant of kind of popular satisfaction um, with not just the government that's in office, but but the entire system by which that government has been empowered. Right, so it can it can cause as it as it did say, um, in the Haitian case in, in 2008, um, uh, when you had um, the ouster of, uh, of, of President Alexis at that point, um, it can cause a more general crisis in democracy. It's not just that this person has to go, it's that democracy is not meeting our needs. Um, but we can also see pretty seismic effects of these kinds of protests in autocratic countries. Um, you know, we saw these kinds of protests were one of the many factors that led to a changing of the guard um, in Sudan uh, a few years back. Um, these kind of protests toppled the Egyptian government. Um, and, you know, you might be trading one autocratic government for another, but there is large potential for destabilization that comes out of these things. The last thing I'll say, while, you know, while I'm on my filibuster, is let's not assume that we in sort of the global north and Western consolidated democracies are immune from this. If you think about the yellow jacket protests in Belgium and France um, that were largely mobilized around not food prices, but a marginal um, increase in, say, diesel fuel prices, right? It's clear that consumers in Western democracies are sensitive to these kinds of price changes and that these are the kinds of issues around which you can mobilize people who, you know, at the time, right, a lot of those were kind of sort of middle-class suburbanites, not exactly the kind of people you normally see manning the barricades at major protests. You can mobilize people who haven't necessarily been mobilized um, this way previously. Uh, and that's something we need to be on the lookout for uh, in the United States. Well, and, and I think we're seeing that now, too. I think, you know, one of the things you, you've said, and this is something I've said a number of times on this podcast and is still a theory of mine, but I, I do feel like America and, and the world as a whole, and let's just call it the 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 rich world or or wealthy nations on a whole have sort of been under a slow boil for the last two decades and we're seeing that start to come to a head now and i think my fear in the and I'll, in the united states specifically is that the fault lines in american society are race and their religion and we're seeing those mobilized 
in the political sphere. So the reason guns and the reason abortion and, and race, for that matter, immigration are such hot issues is because they expose the areas where we're most divided and they don't really require any policies that are going to meaningfully improve people's lives. So your credit card bill is going to be exactly the same. Cost of food is going to be exactly the same, regardless of whether any of those issues are resolved or not. And, uh, and, and my fear is that as things start to get more dire, that we begin to split and fracture and that our system isn't resilient enough to stand up against that. You know, I, I wish I could tell you that you don't have cause for concern, but I think that you do. And, and I, I think that this is something that, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, cards on the table. I think that I think that the, the GOP has been more responsible for the polarization that we've seen uh, than the Democratic Party. And there's pretty solid political science research based evidence to suggest that. Um, having said that, though, it is interesting the degree to which we have increasingly seen kind of elections revolve around what I guess I would call kind of identitarian kinds of issues um, or, or issues that are that and I, I don't want to, you know, put abortion in that category. Right. So, so yeah. maybe we can bracket that. But let's talk about you know, just briefly about gun gun control policy. Right. We have this intractable political divide in the United States over gun control or the lack thereof, I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, and that is something that has animated a lot of the discussion in elections, has animated a lot of the discussion and mobilization um, on both the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, it's red meat that the GOP can give to their base. It's, you know, opposing it is red meat that the, that the Democrats and liberals can give to their base. Um, but, you know, you do get the impression sometimes, if I'm being honest, that, that, that the parties are not really minding the store, so to speak. They're not, the, the political discourse is becoming increasingly disconnected from these basic fundamental issues of, is our government and our economy meeting people's needs in a way that is economically sustainable. Um, and as you've pointed out, you know, one of the one of the problems that is exacerbating this whole thing, right? This this whole story that we've kind of spun out about how agricultural markets have, have gotten more volatile and, and, and prices have gone up and you know the role of speculation, et cetera. The other thing that's been happening is that you've had median wages and median income stagnating you know, for, for decades now. And so these price increases are not being in, met with increases in kind of objective levels of well-being, at least as measured by income, over time. Um, and so, you know, what I said earlier about the fact that this has smaller proportional effects for, for people like you and me, that's probably true. Um, but that effect has been getting bigger for about half the U.S. population, at least, in ways that are starting to be significant. Mm -hmm. And you know, if if you are if you are a, a a political system of any regime type at any level of development that is not able to adequately meet right the, the basic needs for nutrition and energy and, and, and safety um, that we all have, you are going to be a fragile political system. Yeah, there. There are 
two as as we kind of look at what the what the result of all that is, I think there are two big icebergs I see out there, and I'd like you to comment on them. The, the first one I want to tackle is climate change. So as you look at the impact of climate change in the coming decades on the food supply, what do you see? And you know, where in the world, what parts of the world are the most affected by this? How can we expect things to change? There are a lot of kind of cruel ironies embedded in the reality of climate change. And one of them um, is that the most dramatic effects uh, in terms of changes, negative changes uh, in, in, in agricultural productivity, uh, in the availability of arable lands, just places to plant things, et cetera, are falling on the countries of the equatorial regions of, say, you know, Africa, Asia, Central and South America, et cetera, in the tropics that historically have contributed the least to the problem, right? These countries did not benefit from significant emissions-fueled industrialization in the past. Um, and the bill is kind of coming due in terms of the effects for global agriculture for them uh, more quickly um, and, and more gravely uh, than, than it is for, for countries that are at comparatively you know, higher and, and, and lower latitudes. And, and these effects are, are really going to be dire. Um, the effects on you know, basic kind of food crop yields. So think of yield as kind of productivity, right? For those of you who aren't familiar with this term, right? Yield is just for however much land you're, for any given amount of land that you plant, how much do you get back? Um, that yields are going to be declining in, in much of the, of the world, especially in developing countries, by anywhere from 25 to 50%. Um, so those countries are going to have to, you know, to basically have massive kind of technology fueled gains in yield, right? Applying fertilizer, modern agricultural techniques, et cetera, a variety of different ways of, of trying to backfill that. They're gonna be running really fast just to stand still in terms of the amount of food that they're producing. Um, and you're going to see kind of yields increase um, in, in countries like, parts of the United States, Canada, Russia, Kazakhstan, et cetera, that are at these higher latitudes and are gonna benefit from, from longer, like, like planting and growing seasons and potentially more kind of precipitation. Um, and so there's gonna be this real kind of stratification of, the global, of global agricultural productivity um, that's being driven by climate change. There are, other, there are other factors that are contributing to that, but climate change is gonna be this thing that's in the background driving a wedge over time uh, between productivity in those two world regions, broadly speaking. Um, and so the effect of that, right, so, so the, the iceberg here, and this, this kind of comes back to one of the, the, the things we discussed earlier, is that what that implies is that meeting the food needs of the future is going to require an increasingly globalized food system to equilibrate, you know, supply and demand. If food is being grown in places that have surpluses and it's being demanded in places that have deficits, the only way to, to, to make those two things meet is going to be global trade. At the same time, it's going to be concentrating the production of food increasingly in a fewer, you know, in, in a relatively smaller number 
of highly agriculturally productive states, which is going to mean that any, you know, sort of drought, say, in Russia or a wildfire in uh, central Canada that caused their, a series of wildfires in central Canada that caused their harvest to decrease, that effect, because of the globalized nature of that system, is going to reverberate much more widely. Um, and so that's the real challenge that we're facing right now, is devising a lot of policy and technological solutions that are going to allow the system to become even more integrated while weeding out some of these really pernicious problems that are resulting in that integration we experience now um, being associated with bad outcomes. What are, what are some of the solutions being proposed or being implemented right now? I mean, one of the big solutions um, moving forward is going to be migration. Um, migration, in, in, especially in, in discussions of climate change here in the United States, um, even reports that the Biden administration has released from the White House tends to be viewed as kind of the 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 um, kind of kind of a, a factor that's increasing pressure on the system. Right? It's this stress on the system. Most of the time, and in most places, migration in response to kind of environmental deterioration and degradation and climate change is an incredibly beneficial and adaptive strategy. So people are going to be on the move, and the net effect of that, um, you know, not getting into sort of the, the numbers that we think uh, are, are going to be on the move, because that's a, it's a real mugs game trying to predict that. But just overall, we're going to be reducing kind of the, the, the burden of meeting those kind of food needs in parts of the world that are becoming increasingly inhospitable for meeting them themselves, right? So if you think about uh, the Sahel in Africa, this sort of zone of transition that runs across the continent just directly south of the Sahara Desert. Now that, that, that area is seeing large population growth, but it's seeing a decline in agricultural productivity. And in most places it's seeing um, desertification. Uh, it's not going yeah. to be able to sustain its population moving forward and so those folks are going to have to go somewhere. Most of them are going to move around within their own countries, but some of them are going to be moving across borders. So my, migration is one of those things. The other thing that I really think that we need to do is think about common sense sort of regulation of commodity markets that prevents or walks back some of this financialization. Um, I'm not a regulatory expert, so I can't get a mile deep with you on that particular component of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it strikes me that you can have the globalized system without having all of this investment in secondary kind of derivative products. Um, the third thing is that we need policy coordination amongst those liberal Western democracies that are major food producers and exporters like the United States, Canada, uh, France, um, many European Union countries together so that in times of crisis, they can commit to you know, keeping free trade open uh, and, and moderating prices and not reacting with, with sort of bad kind of policy choices and potentially increasing their production moving forward in order to create a larger global buffer in the food supply. Uh, food is not a market that should clear. This is not something where we want supply and demand to perfectly meet. Something where we definitely want there to be uh, a significant buffer in the system. So that's just a few ideas. Yeah, almost like an OPEC for food in a way. It sounds like. Well, I I don't 
it would be it would it would be so so it would entail policy coordination, but it would be policy coordination in service of the exact opposite of what OPEC is doing. So oh, OPEC of is course, yeah. Yeah, OPEC is coordinating policy in the service of regulating supply in a way to keep um, prices and therefore incomes for for oil exporting countries at a desirable level. Um, What we're looking for here is a global food system that coordinates policy in order to keep global uh, food supplies at an adequate level to ensure that the price for them is sustainable. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I'll, I'll rethink and come up with another cheesy analogy before we're done here. Um, (laughs) the, 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 the second thing I I wanted to jump to in the second iceberg I see, and actually, but before I get to that, there's one statement I want to make for the listener, which is, you know, one of the things you highlighted and something that I've talked about before is the fact that there is, there's going to need to be migration and one of the things we're facing here that I think the nativists and the immigration hawks in this country don't talk about enough is the fact that we are experiencing a demographic decline in the United States, but across the the across wealthy democracies, populations are stagnating. And the number one, re, the, the, the two regions that have the largest proportion of of 15 to 34 year old adults is sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. So the two regions that are greatly affected. So I don't want to sound all Pollyannish about it, but I do think there's a huge opportunity via (laughs) migration to balance out the demographic decline in wealthy nations and the needs for migration in, in, the areas most affected by climate change. And I think that's a huge opportunity. I, I think it is too. I think that the way that, that migration uh, is framed in our political debate in the United States is horrific. Um, it vilifies exactly the kind of entrepreneurial go-getter kind of mentality um, that has made this economy so dynamic and this, this country um, so incredibly rich and diverse for centuries. Um, and I also think that it is really encouraging a, a, a mental model of how the world works that is actually going to make conflict around migration more likely to occur, right? Because it's, it's propagating this way of thinking that, that brings a defense and security mentality to something that really, you know, if it, even if it were just cast in, the, in, in a simple economic kind of logic. Um, you know, setting aside kind of the, the the obvious kind of concerns different groups have about kind of the loss of identity. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how far we want to get into that, right? But as you point out, um, you know, this, <laughs> the, there, there, is a, there is a demographic challenge that we need to address and be concerned about. And this is one way of doing it. And thinking and getting ahead of it and thinking about ways to do that productively um, is probably better than than sort of a knee-jerk kind of reaction that is driven by kind of headlines-based or headlines-informed policymaking moving from one crisis to the next. Um, you know, the the the, the last time, <coughs> at the just 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 to give you a sense of kind of how how bad that situation is, right? So at the last Congress of Parties, where all the countries get together to negotiate climate change policy, like twenty-six different sort of headline issues on the agenda. Migration was nowhere on the agenda, 
which just strikes me as, as insane. So that's one thing that, that definitely needs to happen. But that doesn't exactly get you or me or even our great, 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 great grandchildren out of this bind, right? So we can kind of set aside, set aside sort of waiting around for, for, for oil to be viewed as a renewable resource. Um, I think that what I, would, what I would say about that is that we are not making more of it, but we are declining or will be declining in our intensity of usage of petroleum for other things besides, say, things like fertilizer um, moving forward. So, so you're right. There, the, you know, it's anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of of the emissions associated, or sorry, you know, 20 to 30 percent of global kind of, um, you know, petroleum use goes into agriculture in in some way, shape, or form. Part of that will be able to cut down in terms of the the portion that goes into transshipment. Um, you know, the part of it will, will come down once we have electric vehicles like tractors. You know, there's an issue with kind of the the sustained power and torque that tractors need that, that they still have to figure out. It's also the same reason why if you're, you know, hauling a large trailer, you're probably not going to be an early adopter of an electric truck. Um, but that's a problem that can kind of be solved with technology. Um, uh, and ditto on kind of the, the global shipment, although, you know, the, the per unit emissions associated with shipping food are, are relatively small because bulk shipment is is pretty efficient it, it sounds like from from what i'm hearing too the, the uh, we, we've talked a little bit about, about migration and and our approach to immigration being one way we can mitigate uh, against some of the instability some of the negative effects it, it sounds like the part part two of that and this is something that i've touched upon in in some recent episodes is that our consumption patterns just have to change effectively yeah, so some some uses of petroleum are going to be harder to wean ourselves off of than others. Um, and agriculture, at least certain components of agriculture, may be one of those. So what we need to start thinking about doing is making the cuts in overall consumption where we can, operating under the assumption that at least for the foreseeable future, until we build a better mousetrap, we're going to be need to need to be using some petroleum in terms of of, um, say, petroleum-based fertilizers, right? Um, so really what we need to be focusing on is finding other ways to economize the use of petroleum in the agricultural sector, and most of that's going to be on the transshipment kind of side. It's going to be on making farm machinery more efficient. It's going to be essentially electrifying a lot of the machines that are currently fueled by petroleum at this point for, for planting and harvesting and, and transport and the like. Um, I think that radical changes need to be made in a variety of global systems. I think that that's relatively clear at this point. I don't know that I would start with the transformation being an abrupt one to a already fragile global food system. Um, I think that there are, others, there are other places that are potentially lower hanging fruit um, and that would have less kind of seismic sort of political effects in the short run in my lifetime, um, which I'm hoping is, you know, maybe another 40, 50 years, it is not likely that we are going to be able to have a global food system that allows everybody in the world to eat meat the way that Americans eat meat or the way that people here in Japan eat meat. I don't think that that's going to be practical. Um, and so we need to be thinking about alternatives to that. Um, 
and, and ways of making our food consumption, right? Making the food that we consume less calorie intensive in terms of how much food needs to be fed into the animals that we're eating. I mean, think about, just think about a, a cow. Think about how much grassland and arable land in the United States is currently being planted with soy and alfalfa and hay, et cetera, right? In order simply to feed our food, right? Um, the idea that, that that is the most kind of sustainable way of building the food system and is something that we can just be sanguine about, say, a global middle class of three and a half billion additional people wanting to eat the way that, that people eat meat in the United States, that's not going to happen. I mean, the, the, the global kind of resource impacts are going to be great, to say nothing of the methane that would be created. That's a change that's going to have to happen. I think that some of that change will be driven by technology, but that's a, that's a growth area, right? Those are They've, they've attenuated a little bit, but those were, those were companies that were growing like gangbusters because they're meeting a significant market demand and they're doing it in a way where the substitute's getting better all the time, right? It's a little bit like the evolution of the electric car. Didn't seem like a very attractive alternative until things like the Tesla come along. Uh, and all of a sudden, the alternative isn't just as good as your combustion engine car, but better and sexier and more coveted and more status conferring, right? These are the kind of technological solutions that we may be seeing. But I think there are other kind of more fundamental questions that we need to be asking ourselves, not just in the United States, but globally, which is what is the global food system that we want? And then work backward from that to get the policy details right. Like most areas of policymaking, what we have now is a series of kludges and partial solutions to particular problems um, that work okay, um, but we're starting to see kind of the fissures in this sort of haphazard kind of approach to building a global food system. Um, we're going to need more integrated um, thinking and more policy coordination at the international level moving forward. In the near term, is that going to be very achievable? It's looking difficult given kind of the resurgent nationalism that we're seeing in this sort of me first approach to trade policy, financial policy, food export policy right now in a number of important countries. But I, you know, maybe I'm, um, maybe, maybe I'm just, um, I don't know, soft headed, but I think that uh, humanity has gotten it itself out of bigger pickles in the past. And I think we can continue to do so in the future. There are ways out of this problem. They won't be easy, but what's the alternative? I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth, your mouth specifically. Now, you can also sign up for the YDHTY email list by clicking the link in the show description or by going to ydhty.com slash news, your choice. So, takeaways from this conversation. North America does okay with climate change, yay! The upshot of climate change is that crop yields will increase. 
in northern countries. The downside is that a large number of people living near the equator are in peril. Now, this is a scenario with where some sensible migration policies could actually point to a positive solution because the northern countries, wealthy nations are experiencing population decline. Population growth is occurring near the equator. So this is a scenario where we could address the demographic issues of wealthy nations while at the same time giving climate refugees a safe home. Now, I'm really interested in exploring how past famine-led migrations turned out, and I'm gonna be digging into the history of it. You may see an episode coming up uh, relatively soon, so stay tuned. Now, we're also hitting on the familiar theme that we need to change our consumption patterns in America. Food inflation seems to be solving that partly, but we really need to look closer at our diet and how we can reduce its energy footprint. And I, for one, have greatly reduced the consumption of red meat here at the Sally household, which has cut our carbon footprint in half from a dietary perspective. So just one option. We can also eat our leftovers. I'm so glad I had a chance to hammer this one if only my kids would start listening to this podcast. The last part, and something we touched on in a recent episode on dollar hegemony with Bob Swarup, is how U.S. monetary policy and regulation can actually disrupt food supplies in the developing world. And there are actual studies that link to the commoditization of food markets with political unrest. And I'm trying to track down a guest who can speak to this. So shoot me a message if you know someone. It goes to show, again, how the everything bubble created by 20 years of piling on debt is having a destabilizing effect worldwide, both in US politics and across the globe. And I feel like whatever reforms come out of this decade are going to have to include some kind of monetary reform if we're gonna build a sustainable future, sort of a Bretton Woods 2.0, I'll let that one sit. One more note, we have a promotion here at YDHTY and it's not me, the Admiral Admiral, Adam Yaffe has been promoted to Director of Continuous Improvement of YDHTY. And why, you might ask? Well, he held that title when he worked for the city of Chicago, and we can all see how great that turned out, so we're hoping he'll bring that little bit of loveliness here. Wish him well. As always, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY is still produced in loving memory of the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.